Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Andrea Monin Blanc. And you're in for a real treat because not only is she one of the top voices in compliance, but she has some really wonderful new news for every compliance practitioner. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, Andrea, first of all, welcome back. It's so great to have you. Tom, it's really great to be back. Thank you for having me. So you have recently joined a company called CRISP. And can you tell us what CRISP is and what products or services they provide? Sure thing. So CRISP is a well-established, they've been around for about 15 years, company that provides risk intelligence as a service. So basically a algorithm, a series of algorithms that search the open internet and the dark web and the deep web and variety of other sources for potential risks affecting their clients. And their clients are usually brand names and social platforms. So it's basically a way of giving an early warning system to the client on risks that may affect the brand, may affect the social platform. You know, that really seems to me to be one of the things that you have literally preached on since I've known you, which is not simply the management of risk, but the intelligence part of risk, getting the information so that you can manage it. And the Department of Justice really picked up on that last June when they released the evaluation of corporate compliance programs because they really put forward a much more proactive approach. So I was really intrigued by this company, you joining it, and could I ask your role at it? Sure. So I, I was invited to join the board of advisors of CRISP, and they have two other individuals who are very accomplished people in the public relations, communications, and PR areas, and they wanted to have someone with a risk. And obviously, I also have the ethics and compliance background, but the risk piece of it was very important to them because that's kind of the core of what they're doing. And so it's a combination, actually, very interestingly, I think it brings together a lot of things I've been looking at and working in over the years, as you mentioned, where it's sort of a transversal way of looking at these things. It's not just a communications issue. It's not just a risk issue. It's not just a compliance and an ethics issue. It's really all of the above. And so I think what I'm excited about in joining their advisory board is to help them help their clients with that transversal approach to these emerging risks that you may not be able to handle if you don't look at it through these lenses. One of the other things that you are really a subject matter expert in is boards and corporate governance as well. You have participated in that as long as I've known you have written extensively about this. And it seems to me that this role really focuses a lot of the things you've been talking to the compliance community about, about having a compliance professional, a compliance subject matter expert on the board, not simply because we both agree you need it, but really for that, just that last issue you raised, which is to bring a different perspective and to bring that compliance, business ethics, and and in your case, risk management perspective. Why do you see that to be such a critical need today? Well, I think it's it was critical when I first started talking about it, like about 10 years ago, and it's even more critical now. I mean, risks are our everyday occurrence. And we have a convergence of big strategic risks this year, like we've never seen before, certainly in our lifetimes. And so I think boards have traditionally been 
pretty much devoid of anybody like us. They've had the CFOs, the CEOs, the business people, but they haven't had that additional set of eyes, ears, and intelligence of someone who's been steeped in the compliance or the risk or the regulatory or the business ethics, all of which are really important for a holistic sort of successful long-term strategy to be able to be implemented in an organization. So I've been preaching for a long time, as you know, about the need to have people like us, you know, not just one of us, because you don't want to just be a subject matter expert, but a couple of us on every business board that's out there, because we can provide that additional 360 that is so necessary in today's complicated, interconnected risk world. So are you the adult in the room or are you really a trusted partner or perhaps both or something even different? I'm definitely not the adult in the room. They have a lot of adults there already, which is a really good thing. And one of the things that was very attractive to me as I agreed to be part of this enterprise, it's really a group of adults who have different areas of expertise. And certainly on the advisory board, we're three, and each person brings different series of experiences, long history of working within companies or for companies and other kinds of organizations. And so the company, as I said, has been around for 15 years. So they have a long track record already of success. But I think what they were missing, and hopefully I can bring to their picture, is this additional couple of sets of eyes steeped in the risk ethics compliance world, as well as what we talk about a lot nowadays, ESG, which is related to all that, of course. You mentioned the number, quality, and quantum of strategic risk that has changed or morphed in 2020. And I really was in intrigued by that comment because I wanted to ask you any of the trends that I saw in 2018, 2019, things that had existed have exponentially speeded up, sometimes to the speed of light, not even exponentially. And one of the areas I've seen slower to react is boards. And so having that sort of a vision on a board seems to me to be something boards are going to have to do much more robustly going forward. Would you find that to be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. And I think that with the complexity of risk and strategic risk that's occurring, you really don't have a choice. And I think boards are really waking up to that now. There's certainly been this very strong parallel push to diversify boards as well, not just from a functional standpoint, but from a gender, diversity, background, geography, et cetera. And I think that's starting to happen in the conflagration of risks that have emerged this year, including the social inequality issues that we've seen, the social justice issues. Suddenly, boards are really waking up to the fact that they don't have enough people of color on, on their boards. The, the gender aspect has been worked on for a few years, but it's still not quite where it should be. So I think it's a really great complement to the need for these additional sets of eyes and expertise to up the diversity of a board from an ethnic and gender standpoint, as well as from a diversity of experience standpoint. And so I think now is sort of the perfect moment to bring that all together. And I'm seeing a lot of that certainly being talked about, but I think action is also starting to follow. As recently as this summer, the CEO of a major U.S. financial institution said, We'd love to be more diverse, but there's just not enough talent out there. <laughs> oh, Anticipating God. what your answer might be, I did want to ask you that and respond to something like that in 2020. Oh, for Christ's sakes, go back to the 19th century, not even the 20th. I mean, I think that there is a vast array of talent out there 
and we just have not tapped it for the wrong reasons. And there are many women, there are many people of color. You know, our systems of talent acquisition, development, you know, promotion, all these things have had the uh, sort of a, a structure in place that don't really animate diversity. But I think people are starting to realize there's some root causes here that need to change. And there are some great CEOs out there that are starting to be the leaders. And I'll, I'll mention a couple. I think Mark Benioff of Salesforce has been a really great proponent of, of a number of these kinds of things. So has Satya Nadella of Microsoft and others. And they're realizing that these are things that need to happen within their organizations in order to not just make their organizations reflect society more than, than they have, but to actually create competitive advantage. And that's really the bright side of this whole thing is you're not just doing it to be a good citizen. You're doing it because it's good business as well. So I grew up in the South and I grew up in the civil rights era. And after the civil rights era laws were passed in the 60s, probably for the next 30 years, we moved towards a culture of tolerance. I will tolerate you working with me or for me. Now we have a conversation around diversity and inclusion. The thing that struck me is, as important as I think diversity is, I find inclusion, if not equally important, perhaps even more important, because that speaks to a human level of respect that I had, frankly, not seen talked about in the workforce enough. Do you think that just that change in that nomenclature actually makes a difference? Oh, I think it definitely does. And, you know, words really do matter. There are always those who take a superficial approach and will use words just to dress up a marketing stance. But I think those who take it seriously, using the right words and nomenclature to describe your initiatives, your programs, your practices is really, really important. But it does have to have the content behind it. It can't just be empty words that are being used for a marketing purpose. So I love the word inclusion as well. And I think it much better describes what we need to do than just diversity, of course. You are also an incredibly prolific author. Look who's talking. <laughs> I have another book due uh, oh October 31st. <laughs> I'm thinking about that a lot. But your latest book is called Gloom to Boom. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how I, prescient I think it was for this point in time and where we are. It's, uh, yeah, I, you know, people keep saying you were prescient. I think we all saw this kind of thing coming down the tracks. Anybody who's involved in risk management and ethics issues and corporate responsibility and, and just looking at the world, looking at the geopolitics, you know, students of history and cur current affairs, if you're paying attention, you could see this coming down the tracks, maybe not exactly the way it did. So I started writing this book a couple of years ago. I finished writing it about a year and a half ago, and it was published very late last year. And in it, I, I actually, the gloom part references the first chapter, which is called Gloom, the 10 Megatrends of Our Turbulent Times. And it was published in November of 2019. So it was before the pandemic. But if anybody pays attention, you look, for example, at the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report of every year, the pandemic risk was listed there as the number 10 most impactful of this year before they knew that there was a pandemic. Now, it's now going to be the number one, obviously, for the next year. But the point is, we have to keep our aperture open. We need to keep our lens wide open and understand the world that we're living in. And certainly climate change has been talked about for a very long time. And we all knew it was coming down the pike. Pandemics is something we knew was coming down the pike. These are not black swans. These are known potential high impact risks. And so I wrote the book 
to get leaders that the subtitle, which gives a better sense of what the book is about, is how leaders transform risk into resilience and value. And so I take the reader on a trip, which, by the way, after the gloom chapter, I have a very long chapter on leadership, culture and ethics, where I try to synthesize my view of what it takes to have a good leader who can lead you through these difficult times. And so the leadership chapter starts with the sociopathic leader and ends with the emotionally intelligent leader and why ethics and culture are so important. But then I take those leaders on this long voyage between Scylla and Charybdis is the way I framed it of ESG. And then I've added a T for technology because I think, you know, in addition to environmental, social and governance issues, technology issues really suffuse our everyday. And then the last two chapters are about the boom getting to a place of resilience. So I have a resilience model in, in one chapter and then a place of sustainable value. And I go over some of the things that, you know, the purely quantitative people or financial people don't think about, but it's the value of values, of ethics and of other things like trust and reputation. So it's uh, an attempt to tell the story of today as it is. It's dark and it's complicated, but it's also a story of hope where we can really achieve certain things if we work together across countries, across functions, et cetera, to solve some of these really top ESGT issues. You mentioned several things in there. I wanted to maybe see if I could follow up on a little bit. Obviously, ESG is prominent in a lot of people's minds and now ESGT, but the World Economic Forum recently announced that they would have compliance metrics or would suggest compliance metrics be a part of an ESG measurement. And I really wanted to ask, do you see compliance and ethics moving towards a more holistic, more comprehensive, more risk management approach, but including things like ESG, including things like perhaps diversity and inclusion or or social justice? Is that something that you see going into 2025 and beyond? Yes, I do. And, you know, I think we all sort of are talking about similar things and maybe different words. But I like to think about all of these issues as the bucket of non-financial issues that can have a major financial and reputational impact up or down on an organization. And so I think ethics and compliance are a very vital part of that. And whichever way you organize yourself as a company, for example, in terms of do you have a ethics and compliance function? Do you have a corporate responsibility function? Do you have all these? However you organize yourself, you need to tackle the ESG and T issues in a coordinated, integrated way that then can be measured in, to a certain extent. So there should be metrics uh, for sure. And then that can also be integrated into your business strategy so that when you go into new markets or you develop new products and services or you're using AI for something, you're thinking about the ethical implications, the environmental, the social, the governance implications. And also the upside. So there's always an upside. To me, value is always the other side of the coin of risk. If you conquer your risks, you can actually create better products and services. So that's sort of my attitude about all that. Well, I'm glad I asked you that because that would seem to me to be a great tie back into CRISP and that they're providing a part of that. And it's and it's such a broader amount of risk information to bring to the risk management professional, the compliance professional, the ethics professional, that hopefully they will understand the holistic nature of not only what Chris brings, but how to use that information. I agree. And I, you know, that's what intrigued me so much when I started talking with Chris about what they did. 
And I kind of put myself, you know, I've been my own boss, so to speak, with my own business for the last almost eight years. But I put myself in the position of I've been a general counsel, I've been a chief compliance and ethics officer and a chief risk officer before. How would I feel if somebody presented me with something like this service of risk intelligence as a service, early warning system into those really dark and not always identifiable risks that lie beneath, so to speak, that lie within this sort of very confusing and in some ways scary digital world that we live in. And hell yeah, I would want to have that kind of a service where I can understand what's lurking and what's out there and what might affect me as a business. And so to me, it is a piece of the puzzle of what the ethics and compliance or the risk professional needs to think about in today's world. And I saw an interesting piece recently that talked about how this area of social media and dark web, early warning kinds of information is sort of the equivalent in some ways to cyber. There's, it's almost like a different side of cyber. Cyber attacks are attacks that take place from a technology standpoint. But these kinds of darker substantive issues that are out there, whether they're fake or fact, can also come to bite you. And organizations need to know how to manage that and get that early warning signal that things are percolating. Andrea, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've talked about today, where could they go? Well, they can certainly go to gecrisk.com, which is my company. And they can also go, I think it's crispthinking.com. Uh, I'm not sure, but just Google Crisp and you can find find out more about them or just look me up on my website and send me an email. So Andrew, this has been a fascinating interview and way too much fun. I hope I might be able to call upon you again and visit with you further about Crisp and where you are. Absolutely. It's a total pleasure to, to be back on your radar and to spend some time with you, Tom. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.